Uh, why don't we just go ahead and read the boiling pot section. As we know, Ezekiel is famous for various uh, parables and illustrations, uh, several of which we probably don't get in other passages and other, in other prophets. So, uh, verse 1 to 14. <coughs> And the word of the Lord came to me in the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth of the month, saying, Son of man, write the name of the day, this very day. The king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. Speak a parable to the rebellious house, and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Put on the pot, put it on, and also pour water in it. Put in it the pieces, every good piece, the thigh and the shoulder. Fill it with choice bones. Take the choicest of the flock, and also pile wood under the pot. Make it boil vigorously, also also seethe its bones in it. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city, to the pot in which there is rust, and whose rust has not gone out of it. Take out of it piece after piece, without making a choice. For her blood is in her midst, she placed it on the bare rock. She did not pour it on the ground to cover it with dust that it may cause wrath to come up to take vengeance. I have put her blood on the bare rock, that it may not be covered. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city! I also shall make the pile great. Heap on the wood, kindle the fire, boil the flesh well, and mix in the spices, and let the bones be burned. Then set it empty on its coals, so that it may be hot, and its bronze may glow, and its filthiness may be melted in it, its rust consumed. She has wearied me with toil, yet her great rust has not gone from her. Let her rust be in the fire. In your filthiness is lewdness, because I would have cleansed you, yet you are not clean. You will not be cleansed from your filthiness again, until I have spent my wrath upon you. I, the Lord, have spoken. It is coming, and I shall act. I shall not relent, and I shall not pity, and I shall not be sorry. According to your ways and according to your deeds, I shall judge you, declares the Lord God. So, when was this? Ninth year, the tenth month, on the tenth of the month. Why was that date significant? The day Babylon laid siege to Jerusalem? Exactly. <laughs> How? Verse 2. I was thinking, trying to find something in the no, Jewish calendar. This was, it was important that you record the exact date because it's like he's saying, mark that one on your calendar. Remember, they didn't have email, they didn't have telephones. How did Ezekiel know that that was the day that Jerusalem began to be besieged? It would be weeks before that information got back to him in Babylon. But he's telling them the very day, this is the day. You know, ninth year, tenth month, tenth of the month, that would make it January 15th, 588, by uh, my sources, uh, for whatever that's worth. But it, it shows that Ezekiel has a word from God. It's sort of a litmus test to prove he is an authentic prophet. And uh, he said, write the name of the day this very day. you got it written down, and when word comes, I don't know, six weeks later or whenever it's going to come, 
He says, looky here. Here's the day we wrote down. I told you. Because God tells him. It's on this day that he speaks this parable, a little like a parable that they themselves had used back in chapter 11, uh, but somewhat different. Um, because this is God's parable that he's sort of uh, yeah, kind of making some, some uh, plays on from what they were doing. So he's got this pot. And what does he want in the pot? Water. Water and? Meat. And what kind of meat? The good stuff. This is going to be no ordinary stew. We want only the top grade cuts in this, in this boiling pot. So they take the choicest of the flock and they put the very best meat available in that pot and then they pile the wood on and they boil it vigorously. Now, we have seen already the uh, meaning of this, so let's think about it for a minute. What are we seeing in this already? When he takes the choice cuts of meat and puts those cuts in the pot, what is that really saying in application? That they're no better than the less choice cuts of meat. That's true. What would these choice cuts of meat represent? Their best. Their best the people. I think so. I think this would be like the most distinguished citizens. <laughs> they get thrown in the pot. And when he when he piles the wood on and has it boil vigorously, I think God's uh, going to use Nebuchadnezzar to think make things really hot for Jerusalem. It's kind of like uh, if we use our expressions, their goose is cooked. <laughs> you know, or it will be, by Nebuchadnezzar. Um, then we see why, in verse 6 and 9, what does he call Jerusalem? Bloody city. Bloody city. We talked about this before. What were some of the reasons why they would have been considered a bloody city? Because they were sacrificing their children and all in pagan sacrifices. That's one big one. And? Aren't they killing people? Yeah. Violence, judicial murder. This was a bloody city. I mean, that's that's really true. Um, and so he says, uh, put uh, we're gonna we're gonna have this pot that's rusty, and they're gonna take out of it piece after piece without making a choice. Now, taking these cuts of meat out of the pot would symbolize what? They would be pulled out of the pot and be saved from destruction? Or... Yeah, sort of! Or is it time that they're ready to be it's eaten? dinner time. <laughs> no, I don't think it's that they're going to be eaten, but... I mean, it's... What, what was going to happen to these uh, <laughs> cuts that were pulled out of the pot? In practical application. Not all of them were killed. Not all of them were boiled. What happened to some of them? Yeah, they were sent off into exile. I think that's probably what he's Does talking about. Does the rest about. symbolize anything? Well, I think it symbolizes the fact that the city had this corruption, this rust, and it was so deeply ingrained in the pot that you couldn't scour it off. You just had to basically melt down the pot. So it probably represents like the sin and corruption and wickedness. But 
But so he's saying take out of it piece after piece without making a choice. I think he's saying when, when they're sent off into exile, it's going to be indiscriminate. You know, Babylon's going to send all kinds of people off into exile. They're not going to choose just certain people. You know, it's whoever they can find, they're, they'll send off. Of course, that's better than what happens to the rest of them that are actually boiled in the pot. So that's what I think he's saying. Um, and, and, you know, he again emphasizes the reason in verses 7 and 8, this bloody city, where's the blood? In her midst. In her midst, where? On the bare rock. As opposed to the ground, the ground where it can be covered over. <clears throat> now the idea of the blood on the bare rock, does, do you expect the blood would penetrate and kind of be absorbed in the rock? No. Rocks don't really do that very well. Pour it out on the ground and put some dust on it or whatever, then it would kind of cover it up and it wouldn't be so glaring. If you pour the blood on the bare rock, it's going to be there to show the injustice and the need for God to bring vengeance on this, this bloody city. This city that was, was killing its inhabitants. Um, reminds you, of the blood of righteous Abel that cried out from the ground when Cain killed him. And the idea of that is just the injustice cries out for punishment. You know, it's just not right for, for, for these violent acts to be committed and nothing to be done about it. And uh, what could have been done? Well, if the um, criminals were properly executed, that would be a way of covering over that blood and doing the right thing. That's not likely to happen. The court system was as corrupt as anything. The government was leading the way. So this blood just poured on the bare rock and it's not covered up. Do you have questions or comments, say, through verse uh, 9? So is the putting of her blood, of her blood on the bare rock by God so that it may not be covered, is that like an obvious, meant to be like an obvious punishment? Yeah, I think so. I think it's sort of the Here's punishment the that fits of, the crime. Uh, she's poured out the blood she shed on the bare rock. So God says, I'm going to take vengeance. I put her blood on the bare rock. You know, I'm going to, you know, just do violence to her. Not gonna be anybody there to cover it up. <laughs> Notice this this you know, you can see this beginning as a, you know, nice barbecue, but it is ending as a blazing inferno. You know, verse ten, heap on the wood, kindle the fire, boil the flesh well, put the spices in it, let the bones be burned. And then just set the empty pot on this hot coals to the point where the pot's just sort of melted. Uh, and, and that's the only way you're going to get rid of the contamination. You're going to have to melt away this rust. There's no other way to cleanse it. Uh, because look at, at verse 13. In your filthiness is lewdness. Because I would have cleansed you, yet you're not clean. You would not be cleansed from your filthiness again. So... Verse 14, I, the Lord, have spoken. It's coming. I will act. I will not relent. I will not pity. I will not be sorry. I will judge you. 
God is saying, kind of in a war drum cadence, I will punish Jerusalem. An appropriate time for this prophecy, because it's right at the beginning of the siege. We know what's going to happen in this siege. You know, boil Jerusalem. <laughs> Comments and questions? I think it's interesting what the, um, you think the rock might be able to symbolize like a, they were killing their children on like these these altars and that would maybe symbolize what the rock would be. Mm-hmm. They, they certainly did a lot of that and there's probably no act of um, murder that was more despicable than God. You know, it's worship to false gods and it's the children God gave. You know, she's murdering God's children in this way. Sometimes we're not any better because uh, I call abortion or not. Mm-hmm. And we don't like sacrifice or something to idols, but we still kill. Good point. Well, no, their reasons for doing that are idolatrous. When you think about it. Yeah, idolizing their own self-indulgent pleasure, generally. Was Jerusalem burned? Some of it was, yeah. By Babylon, by Nebuchadnezzar, but not all of it. I mean, I don't know there was a fire over all of it, but we at least find out that some of it was burned in Nehemiah. Right. Because factory built the walls. Right. Verse 14. It feels like it's been a long time since we've heard him say, I shall not pity and I shall not be sorry. Because I, I remember there was a a section that we went through where, you know, and I shall have no pity on them. No pity, no pity, no yeah, pity. Yeah, back in chapter 7 or something like that. So right? now we're back to the no pity concept again. Mm-hmm. So no pity party. Yeah. I like your version. My version doesn't say, I will not be sorry. I like that a lot. What is yours? Um, mine just says, um, I will not hold back, nor will I spare, nor will I relent. But I like, I will not be sorry. I like the, I will not, I will not, I will not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, spoken, it is coming, I shall have That was in, oh, that was in Revelation, any longer, any longer, any longer. Six times. Chapter 18, verses 21 That's to 22. That's coming up. <laughs> <laughs> Just right here on my Bible. Quote the raven, never more, James. It's interesting with, um, with the rust, uh, if we truly... We can use this as purifying the pot. He's taking all the sin out of it. I think, as you stated, um, it's interesting. It's almost worse than other nations. Like I don't remember where it is, where he has to, where he rips the idols out of their mouth um, to purify them. Here, it's almost worse. He has to boil them. He has to cook them to get it all out. Um, I, I don't know so much to that, but it's interesting to see that. Just a comparison there. How he ripped the same idolatry out of their mouth with Jerusalem, he has to boil it out of them. Mm-hmm. What was it that he ripped it? We studied that. What was it? They were trying to, they were plucking something out that shouldn't. Um, I, I don't remember that. Say, rip, ripping it out of them. Yeah. They were trying to hold on so tight. 
and he had a tear down in him. Oh, now that's because they're coming back to me. Uh, I've heard it. Ah. <laughs> Was this a long time ago that we put in this? Uh huh. Is it in Ezekiel? Oh, thank you. Ezekiel, what are we studying before Ezekiel? That's coming to me. It's uh, Zechariah 9. Is that what you're thinking about? Zechariah 9, verse uh, 7. Yeah. I will take away the blood from his mouth and the abominations from between his teeth. Zechariah 10, 7, and 9. 9, 7. But he who remains shall he be for our God and shall be like the leader in Judah. I think that may be the one. Take me a minute. It. There's something else. There's another place. No, no, this is it. Uh-huh. This is it. We're holding on tight. Yeah. yeah. Like an old dog or something. It's been a while since I've gone through Zechariah. Oh, so. Do I? Zechariah and Malachi are the two best minor prophets. <laughs> Zechariah and what else? Malachi. Um, I like Haggai a lot. I like Jonah. <laughs> I don't consider Jonah a prophet. Very short. Very short. Okay. So speak, sir. I speak. I'm trying to remember what, why I have this idea of a pot of boiling water connected with the temple sacrifices. And I don't know if it's just like um, stuff from First Samuel where Eli's sons were poking in with a fork where they weren't going to, or there was something with boiling water and they wanted it roasted, not boiled, or boiled, not roasted, and they weren't getting their way, and so they were yeah. just taking it. They like but I don't remember what it was about. Well, yeah, you got that. Uh, the meat was boiling in First Samuel two two thirteen. And they made themselves fat by taking out the best part. Of yeah, made Eli fat too. Yeah, he tottered over. Reminds me of Humpty Dumpty. I need to visualize it after a revelation. So I don't visualize anything. And he comes to dump, he's sitting up there. And he hears about his sons. So how is it supposed to have been going? Well, they weren't supposed to just take whatever part they wanted. They were supposed to take the parts the Lord gave them. But don't ask me about the boiling nature of it. Because I didn't know if they had, like... Do you know anything about boiling the meat in connection with the sacrifices, too? I'm sorry. You know about boiling the meat with the sacrifices? No, I don't. I'm something like that. I don't just what she said about this or that. It's like a fork and cheese or something. The other thing that I found was that was... Like when it told them to pour out the blood on the ground, wasn't that what you're supposed to do if you ate an animal or something like that? Well, yeah, you weren't supposed, supposed to eat the blood. Eat it. Yeah. Or you're supposed to pour it on the ground. But that, that's unrelated to this, though. I think so. Okay. <laughs> but that's what it made me think of. I think this is human blood. Okay. I think you weren't supposed to. Okay. Mm -hmm.
All right, anything else through 2414? All right, um, 15 to 27. Also, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, behold, I take away from you the desire of your eyes with one stroke, yet you shall neither mourn nor weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sign silence, make no mourning for the dead, bind your turban on your head, and put your sandals on your feet. Do not cover your lips, and do not eat man's bread of sorrow. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and at evening my wife died, and the next morning I did as I was commanded. And the people said to me, Will you not tell us what these things signify to us, that you behave so? Then I answered them. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Speak to the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will profane my sanctuary, your arrogant boasts, the desire of your eyes, the delight of your soul. And your sons and daughters whom you left behind shall fall by the sword. And you shall do as I have done. You shall not cover your lips, nor eat man's bread of sorrow. Your turban shall be on your head, and your sandals on your feet. You shall neither mourn nor weep, but you shall pine away in your iniquities, and mourn with one another. Thus Ezekiel is assigned to you, according to all that he has done, you shall do. And when this comes, you shall know that I am the Lord God. And you, son of man, will it not be in the day when I take from them their stronghold, their joy and their glory, the desire of their eyes, and that on which they set their minds, their sons and their daughters, on that day, one who escapes will come to you to let you hear it with your ears. On that day, your mouth will be opened to him who has escaped, and you shall speak and no longer be mute. Thus you will be assigned to them, and they shall know that I am the Lord. So, wow. It's tough to be a prophet. <laughs> um, because what does God tell Ezekiel is going to happen? That's what going to do. Yes. Don't you love what he calls her? The desire of his eyes. It's kind of uh, romantic, poetic, whatever. But she's going to be taken away from him. She's, you know, I assume that calling her that means that they loved each other, had a close relationship, they cared about each other, and suddenly she's going to be killed. Now what would your automatic reaction to that be if you love your wife? Be upset. Yeah, mourning and grief. And what does God tell Ezekiel? Yes. He is not to do anything that shows mourning or grief. Wow. Could you do that? That's really tough. I mean, we're going to see in a minute why. There's a point behind this. But I think that we need to think a little bit about how someone like Ezekiel is called by God to fulfill his purpose. And those who are called by God sometimes have a high price to pay to serve him. And there are some times when how I feel personally is sort of beside the point. Thank you. And, uh, you know, that's not... Um, it doesn't make any difference, you know, about the personal life and and what he feels. Um, because he's got a responsibility to carry out God's mission. And God sometimes told these guys to do things that seem so difficult from a human perspective. Do not mourn your wife. 
And what did he tell Jeremiah not to do? Not to marry. Not to get a wife. <laughs> and what did he tell Hosea to do? Marry a prostitute. And then to buy her back. Could it be difficult to be one of God's prophets? Think about the apostles. They put up with a lot. And so forth and so on. We are into this thing where if it's tough, well, it's just like, well, that's, you know, God would never expect somebody to, to do this. He did. And so I think that in itself is just an impressive thing. On the other hand, does the Lord know anything about sacrifice and suffering? You know, he gave up his son. I mean, you know, he's he's not asking us to do something that's different, ultimately, than what he's willing to do for us and has done for us. So... But that, that's just uh, interesting. He cannot, he's not allowed to mourn. There were some limitations, I might add, on the mourning of priests for relatives. And Ezekiel was a priest. And so they were not allowed to defile themselves except for their nearest of kin. That's uh, Leviticus 21. So, I mean, Ezekiel, as a priest, would already know there were some times he had to be limited and couldn't express his mourning. Do you remember another case that's similar to this, in which mourning was not allowed for close relatives upon the death of somebody? James? Yes. Leviticus chapter 10. They were not allowed to mourn them. Now, in that case, why were they not allowed to mourn Nadab and Abihu's death? Yeah. I mean, mourning would almost fly in the face of the fact this was just judgment that they had to go along with. They couldn't, by mourning, protest the righteousness of what God did. Still, whoa. You know, your two sons get uh, destroyed by fire from heaven, just like that. Uh, Not mourning would be difficult. So that's what Ezekiel does. Um, You know, that evening, the missus dies, and the next morning he's going about his business without the morning, and the people say, what do these things mean? And what does he say that this is all about? That God is going to profane the desire of his eyes, or their eyes, or something. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And they won't mourn for that either. Yes. God is going to devastate them. He's going to profane his sanctuary. He's going to take away their sons and daughters by the sword. And they will not weep or mourn either. Perhaps recognizing the justice of the judgment. Perhaps because the destruction was going to be so great, they're almost stunned and don't have the ability to express grief. I'm not sure. Uh, but, But in this situation, in some way, verse 24, Ezekiel becomes a sign to them. You know, the way I didn't grieve the death of my wife, you won't grieve the horrible devastation that comes upon Jerusalem. So Ezekiel becomes sort of a parable or an object lesson of what will happen with them. Comments and questions through 24. The desire of their eyes, was that the temple? I think so. Okay. They really felt 
strongly about the temple. The place where God dwelt, where they could come in contact with God, the place of their sacrifices and their worship and their feast days. Wow. So is this a... Is this like an instruction? When you hear about all of this being destroyed, you should not mourn? Or is this... When you hear about it, you'll understand and you will not mourn. I'm not sure. Maybe the latter. It's been a while, hasn't it? Depending on whether you count the sword fight, that Ezekiel has had an interactive type of thing. It's been parables and stories, but it's been a while since he's had some uh, acting out type things to do. You're right. Yeah. I agree with that. I was Ezekiel's wife, and I'd be glad to die. Man, instead of going through all that, it's going to happen to Jerusalem. Yes, of course, remember Ezekiel, and I assume the missus are already in Babylon. I like to think she's righteous. I hope so. That's all we know about her. Yeah. <laughs> he was delighted in her, and she died. A man of God would be delighted in a righteous wife. You would think so. Yeah. That makes me feel a little better about her. Mm-hmm. Death is not necessarily a bad thing for her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. We we come up with this thing where, you know, the whole goal of our existence is to perpetuate our life on this earth. And, you know, I mean, there are even mm-hmm. better things than that if we're with the Lord. Verse 18 reminds me of um, when God told Abraham to sacrifice his son. And the next verse is, early the next morning, Abraham rose yeah. and did it. I mean, that just comes to mind. Yeah. Same kind of, I did as I was commanded. Or even like, not Ananias, it's the other Anna something or another, who was told to go and heal Paul. Ananias. Okay. Not the same Ananias as um, Sapphira. Yes, there we go. But I mean, and you know, and then he went. You know, there's that language. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can think about it this way. I mean, some people, if a loved one dies, they become very resentful of the Lord and blame God and become angry toward Him. What about in this case? I mean, <laughs> wow. I mean. I am about to take from you the desire of your eyes. I, I, I mean, I take it, the Lord's going to zap her. <laughs> and then telling Ezekiel, and you can't mourn her. I mean, wow. It would be very easy to be angry toward the Lord, no indication Ezekiel is. The Lord may take from us. I mean, we sometimes, well, it wasn't really God, it was this or that, whatever. Whatever you want to say about that, God could stop anything he wanted to stop. I mean, you know. And, uh, I don't think it's impossible that God may choose to take my wife away by death. She's a faithful Christian, so I would not mourn her, but it'd be really hard for me. But, you know, I would have to accept that and realize, well, the Lord knows what's best. I think Ezekiel's doing this so readily really says something about his commitment to the Lord. What did he? What what does he? Did he say to the people the morning before his wife died? I don't know. 
I'm trying to think if that was like um, maybe the the boiling pot parable or something else or I don't know. Maybe he told him what God had just told him. That'd they probably be the most logical. When he did as he was commanded, they didn't. It, there's no sign that they were surprised that they at his lack of mourning. So I wonder if he told them, "This is what's going to happen." And, and then mourn. when it came to pass and he didn't mourn her, they're saying, "Okay, what's it mean then?" Could be. That's so freaky. <laughs> I imagine it was. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, just just the idea of. also puts me in mind of uh, the messenger who was sent to the city, you know, and when you return when your your foot hits the... the oh, yes. You know. The baby dies? The baby dies. Who was that? It was the king, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, and his wife Dave. disguised. Yeah. Or the man. Was it his wife who was the messenger? Yes. His wife went and asked and he, she was told that whenever you get to the city the kid dies. I wouldn't have gone back to the city. <laughs> but she did, and who was she? I don't know. Jay, did you kick her over there? To the king? Yeah, good. It was a later king, right? Well, later than what? <laughs> was it on the board? It was Mrs. Jeroboam. Mrs. Jeroboam? Jeroboam. Oh, it was an earlier king. An earlier king. <laughs> the first king of the divided kingdom for the Lord. Wow, I thought it had... Well, I That's a good I guess with the uh, Old Testament names. Go on with your point now, Sarah. But, I, I mean, it's like, you're Ezekiel and you didn't want this to happen. You wouldn't want to speak to the people in the morning because you knew what would happen that evening. Just like, you know, Mrs. J wouldn't have wanted to, she would have wanted to extend that journey as long as she could, perhaps, or yeah. maybe not, I don't know. Not that she wants her kid to die, but maybe she just didn't believe it. I wondered that. In which case, she probably ran back to her son, which would not going to turn out well for you know things. How old was the son? Just a baby, wasn't it? I don't know. Maybe it was good that he couldn't live long enough to be corrupted by Jeroboam. What? Well, that was like that was part of the point, though, right? Because he was the only righteous one around. Oh, is that it? So he was gonna die. It uh, actually says something similar to that. Oh, that's great. It uh, says, uh, All Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, for he alone of Jeroboam's family will come to the grave, because in him something good was found toward the Lord God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. 1 Kings 14, 13. It could be still not to give some of there. How, uh, saying uh, when God to like the baby which was um, Israel and then made her his wife sort of mm-hmm. and then uh, <clears throat> now it's talking about uh, Ezekiel's wife died and he wasn't supposed to mourn there and now uh, Israel's going to be taken captive but God's not going to mourn that Interesting thought. This is a random comment, but that boiling meat passage is in Exodus 29:31 and Leviticus 8:31. Well, thank you. <laughs>
is dealing with the consecration of the priests. Yeah, you're right. Good for you. Now there's another thing that happens here. On the day that the Babylonians destroy Jerusalem, um, what will happen to Ezekiel? He will talk again. I, I thought he'd been talking all along. Only the message of the Lord to the people. Back from chapter 3, he was mute until the Lord had a message. After Jerusalem is destroyed, Ezekiel can speak normally. Because there's a new era now. This is not going to be a time of prophecies of gloom and doom for God's people. Now there would be prophecies of hope and restoration for God's people. As the phase is shifting. The prophecies of doom have been confirmed. And now Ezekiel will speak freely of God's blessings in the future for the people who have gone into captivity. Comments and questions on that and on chapter 24. It's kind of, in one sense, it's kind of sad that he'll be able to speak freely now that his wife is dead. Yeah. I mean, in, in a sense. To what extent he wasn't able to speak to her. I don't know. It may have just been public proclamations, yeah. but yeah, who knows. Anything else on 24? Well, 25 begins a whole new era for us in Ezekiel. Um, a, a major section break. Now, several things we ought to say by way of introduction to this. This is a prophecy against the nations section. And it comes at a very key time. We know that they have laid siege to Jerusalem and we are waiting to find out what's going to happen. That comes in the chapter after these eight that have the prophecies about the nations. In chapter 33, verses 21 and 22, we find out that Jerusalem fell. So while we're waiting to find word of what's going to happen to Jerusalem in this siege... We look at God's statements about other nations and his prophecies against them. That sort of kind of parallels what the people had to do. They had to wait. You know, and so it's kind of a dramatic, tense moment. Um, And they're just waiting. Now, these prophecies against the nations in general are... um, not the world's most uh, maybe exciting to us sections. Someone has said that uh, people struggle to see the relevance of these passages, just like the genealogies in Chronicles and the regulations on mildew and Leviticus. Probably not ones we tend to read very much. So why would God bother to tell us about all these different nations and how he was going to bring them down? Part of it would be a, for us it's a confirmation of what he's saying. I mean, if we look at, um, like, the judgment on Tyre, and, you know, you look and, oh, look, 
that exact thing happened, you know, historically speaking, then you know it's another confirmation of what's going on. Good point. I'll agree. Maybe showing that um, those who are wicked won't escape God's judgment. Yes, no matter where they're at. Because God is the sovereign ruler of all the world, not just of his people. And so it's showing that even the other nations are accountable before God. And um, I think that's a powerful thing. Um, God is the God of all the earth. Now, the structure of this section is interesting. Look a little bit at it. Go 25 has prophecies against four nations. Then 26, 27, and a lot of 28 is all about one nation, Tyre. And then there's another one in uh, 28, verses 20 to 24, 23. And then suddenly, in the end of 28, verses 24 to 26, there's a prophecy of blessing for God's people. And then, chapters 29, 30, 31, and 32 are prophecies against Egypt. Now, here's what this means. There were 97 verses against the nations, three verses of blessings for Israel, and another 97 verses against the nations. And there are seven nations that are treated here. Ammon, Moab, Edom, Philistines, Tyre, Sidon, and Egypt. And... Clearly with Egypt, and I think also with Tyre, there were exactly seven messages from God for each of them. Now, I don't think that's all coincidental. I think this is a well-planned-out section, and um, that this is a systematic prophecies against these various nations. Anything you want to say by way of introduction to these prophecies? Yeah, it is cool. You can see the distinction in the oracles uh, by the phrase, thus says the Lord God, in connection with Tyre, or something like that. And with Egypt, it's like the word of God came again, or a date with the word of God coming. So, we'll, we'll, come, we'll work on that a little bit when we get to those and show the seven, sevenness of this Anything else by way of introduction to these uh, judgment oracles? Alright, chapter 25, verses 1 to 7. You gotta go. I understand. Thank you for coming. Uh, I'm in the area. Where in the area? She's the driver's at. Oh, that's probably where. Uh, yeah, I knew her name. I just couldn't come up with it. <laughs> Well, I, would hope mm-hmm. so I, I went through Sandra and Laura trying to come up to Debbie. <laughs> mm-hmm. Good thing. See ya. See ya. Bye. Shoes. <laughs> we don't want you barefoot. Where are your socks? Inside my shoes. That way he doesn't lose them. <laughs> well, what yeah. if he loses his shoes? Well, if he loses his shoes, then he loses his socks too. But he won't lose his feet. 
experience altered by being barefoot while you're learning? Yes. There's the question. I don't know, probably it make my shoes off. <laughs> if you're a tactile learner, I would say that probably it helps to be barefoot. I bet. Yeah, <laughs> more sensory, like... <laughs> Hands-on kind of you need, you need to go back to school. Yeah, yeah, I know. Vocabulary has not been his strong suit. <laughs> But it'll be even stranger having her driving. Yes, because she, she drove me. Oh, I know. I Poor girl. I drove with her. Where is the seat for the road in the ditch? I came over on Saturday and Ariel was starting to drive out of the driveway when I was coming in. Only I didn't know it was Ariel. And I was in the car. We were driving by. I was she in was the car. Very slow. When we turned and when we backed out of the garage, I just like zoomed out of the garage and she was like, amazing the difference a year ago. Very slow. <laughs> and then we would turn. Mom, <laughs> we forgot about the wood. Say Mindy. Mindy. And she, she drove and she drove the speed limit. I had a problem with driving too slow at first because I was scared to go fast. But she went up to the speed limit and She's getting better at controlling it consistently. So, Mindy, <laughs> yeah, I think the speed limit is a hard to fast rule. No, you uh, don't. You don't ever go slower. You go the speed limit. No, you uh, go slower. No, they tell you have to go the speed limit. No, Mindy. you don't. Uh, yeah, I like to always go Mindy. the speed limit. Mom, she forgot about the wood being there. So when we went out, we ran over the wood. Uh -oh. and she's like, Oh You're no! The she said, we can't. We couldn't get like off the wood. We're like backing up and going forward, backing up. Oh no, well because there's some nails. And Dad told her, you'll be okay as long as you don't go over the wood. Oh, no. And yeah, we went over the wood. And then I felt we went over the whole entire pile. She's like, whoa. I'm like, I think we just went over the wood. Like, over the wood. Wouldn't you know. Alright. <laughs> Chapter 25, verses 1 through 7. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against the Ammonites and prophesy against them. Say to the Ammonites, Hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God, Because you said, Aha, against my sanctuary when it was profane, and against the land of Israel when it was desolate, and against the house of Judah when they went into captivity. Indeed, therefore, I will deliver you as a possession to the men of the east, and they shall set their encampments among you and make their dwellings among you. They shall eat your fruit and they shall drink your milk. And I will make Rabbah a stable for camels and Ammon a resting place for flocks. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, because you clapped your hands and stamped your feet and rejoiced in your heart with all your disdain for the land of Israel, indeed therefore 
I will stretch out my hand against you and give you as plunder to the nations. I will cut you off from the peoples and will cause you to perish from the countries. I will destroy you and you shall know that I am the Lord. This is a prophecy against? Ammon. What do you know about Ammon? Descended from Lot. Descended from Lot. Lived where? No, I don't think so. Down a little bit. No, we live right there. He's not just a little bit higher. <laughs> where, where, where'd they live? On the side. Is it on our on map? The desert. Yes. Mommy, they live. You remember where the two and a half tribes were in the Transjordanian region? Well, they lived right to the right of those tribes. Which three tribes were those, by the way? Half tribe of Manasseh. Half tribe of Manasseh. Gad. Gad and Reuben. Yes. No, it's um, too small. So right to the right of that was the sliver that was Ammon. And, um, well, you've got the because uh, sections in verse 3 and verse 5. And you have the therefore sections in verses 4 and 5 and verse 7. In the because sections, you find out why God was going to punish the Ammonites. Why is that? You said, aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, why was it bad to say, aha? Uh-huh? Because they were rejoicing in the desolation of God's people. Exactly. They had malicious glee over Jerusalem's destruction. Notice the three things that were destroyed in verse 3. They are the sanctuary, the land, and the the people themselves. And that is the triangle that you've got. The sanctuary representing God, the land, and the people. And all three of those were were desolated. And they were rejoicing over it. They were thrilled. Or in verse 6, their hand, their foot, and their inner emotions all joined together against Israel. They clapped their hands, they stomped their feet, and they rejoiced against the Israelites when they were brought down. So this unneighborly rejoicing over Jerusalem's destruction, God was going to judge. And he was going to judge them how? Giving them away to the sons of the east. Yes. Who would camp out among them and live off of them. And in verse 7, Well, they'll be cut off from everyone and eventually they'll perish. They'll be destroyed. Exactly. God would personally wipe them off the face of the map. All that for a bad attitude. Yes. I mean, that says a lot. Yes. That says a lot. It does. It's a bad attitude against God's people and therefore against the Lord himself. And God doesn't tolerate that very nicely. And they were even related. They should have respected this. What we're going to do here is we start with Ammon, and we're going to work our way around in a clockwise direction. So that's that's what we're doing in these uh, prophecies. But comments and questions through verse 7 about Ammon. I have one. All right. Oh, yeah. 
when was this that they were happy about the destruction? Oz, just right now? I think so. I think he's, I think, not that they haven't been happy about other destructions, right. but I think he's probably focusing in on Nebuchadnezzar's uh, destruction of Jerusalem. Okay, now some of that hasn't happened yet, has it? Um, well, it's in the process. Okay, and, and they're happy about that. And, yeah, in 24, they were laid siege to, and in 33, they're going to fall. And this is kind of the interlude. Now that, and, and so these prophecies, I think, are assuming the destruction of Jerusalem. Okay. Good and, who, and who was it that was going to come in and, like, occupy them? Do, do we know Never that? Never uh, the people of Ammon was going to occupy them too, so it wasn't just Israel, like he got everybody. Got Ammon later. Remember when he stood at the fork of the road? And oh, in the liver? The deliver business. And he went to Jerusalem, but then later. Oh. Uh, yeah, okay, that was the so two Nef- choices. Nef- 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 was gonna yeah. So the second liver said go to Ammon. Yeah, I guess. I guess when he went to uh, further liver research, uh, Ammon got it. Liverology. <laughs> Yeah. Hepatology. Never worst. <laughs> All right, other comments or questions about Ammon? All right, chapter 25, verses 8 through 11. Thus says the Lord God, because Moab and Seir say, Behold, the house of Judah is like all the nations. Therefore, behold, I am going to deprive the flank of Moab of its cities, of its cities which are on its frontiers, the glory of the land, Beth Cheshma, Baal-Meon, and Kirithram. And I will give it for possession along the sons of Ammon to the sons of the east, so that the sons of Ammon will not be remembered among the nations. Thus I will execute judgments on Moab, and they will know that I am the Lord. Okay. Now... This is primarily against who was whom. What? So, do you see the connection? Ammon and Ammon then Moab. Ammon was Lot. Ammon was Lot, too. This is like Amos. Yes, it is. is like and like Amos? all the major prophets. Did Amos start out and kept getting closer? Yeah, well, this is not starting out and keep getting closer, but this is the section of the judgments against the nations. You have sections I'm like that. I'm that you, like... Yeah, she's good. Like, I don't know. I was like, well, I wouldn't necessarily say this is like Amos. But so it that is. that was good. I was impressed. Yeah. <laughs> but but there, there are these judgment sections against the nations in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, and Zephaniah, for sure. You've got at least those five books that have this kind of thing. You've got a section that does the judgment prophecies against the nations. Uh, you might argue that in another book or two a little bit, but not quite the same way. I think these are the, the best representations of that. Who is Seer? That's a good question. Seer was in what territory? Edom, and that's what's going to come next. I'm not sure why he groups Seir here, but that will lead us right into Edom. In is Seir a city? Mountain. Mount Seir was where Edom was. Now, what had Moab done that caused them not to be highly regarded by the Lord? I don't understand this. I mean, it says 
the house of Judah is like all the nations, so it's charging God's people with being somebody not special, right? Yes. But weren't they, I mean, wasn't that true? Yes and no. They acted like the other nations, but they were actually a special people of God. You know, I think it's contradicting the idea that they're God's chosen people, and maybe even that their God was special. I think they didn't think of Judah and their God as being any different than other nations with their gods. Look with me at some passages, at least, that I think would be helpful about this, that are probably worth looking at in their own right. Deuteronomy 4, verse 7. Just several passages that, that are interesting. Deuteronomy 4, 7. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? And then in Deuteronomy 4.33, Has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire as you have heard it and survived? Or has a God tried to go to take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials, by signs and wonders, and by war, and by a mighty hand, and by an outstretched arm, and by great terrors, as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? They're special because of what God has done for them in a sense different than, than has been done for other nations. Or look at 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 23. 2 Samuel 7, 23, this is in David's prayer after the promise God made. And what one nation on the earth is like your people Israel, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, and to make a name for himself, and to do a great thing for you, and awesome things for your land before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from nations and their God. They are unique because of what God has done for them. And uh, so, I think that, uh, I think they're trying to contradict that specialness because they have a special God. Now, they have not chosen to preserve that specialness very well in terms of their behavior. They were supposed to be a holy nation who acted different. And you remember, even when they wanted a king, they wanted a king like... Yeah. And it was actually their privilege to be different. But still in all, when Moab says, eh, how's it Judah like all the, all the nations? They're really denying the specialness of having a God like Jehovah. That's really the, that's the outrage of that. And God wouldn't put up with it. So what's the punishment? They'll be wiped away with famine. Yeah. Also by Nebuchadnezzar? Yeah, I think so. In fact, believe it. Every one of these prophecies against the nations, at least Nebuchadnezzar had some hand in fulfilling. Okay. There's at least one that's going to go beyond Nebuchadnezzar and is completed by somebody else. But I think Nebuchadnezzar was involved in all of those. Okay. Maybe, maybe more, maybe a couple of them that go beyond just that. But. Do you know if there was something that made those three cities special? No, I don't. Yeah, you're you're just different. We have I am going to deprive the flank of Moab of its cities. I think yours is probably clearer. I like going better because it's like, well, I'm gonna take care of your cities for you. Clear them out. What's your statement? I'll clear the territory of Moab of cities. What are you in, the NKJV or the ESV? Yeah, the New King James. Okay.
It's not always great on some things, but I like this. Yeah, uh, the newer concern is probably slightly better in general. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, comments and questions on Moab and things through 11. 12 to 14. Well, I'm probably missed, you probably said this, but why is Ezekiel telling them about what's happening to the Gentile nation? <laughs> and what would you say about that, people? It's a dramatic pause. Yes? And it demonstrates God's um, justness in punishing other nations, too, because he's in control of the whole world. I have wonderful students. Master of the universe. So I wasn't the only one that asked that question. No, he volunteered. I, I wanted them to. I wanted everyone to know. I'll listen to the tape. Yes. <laughs> but they did well with that. That was a good summary, guys. Yeah. Oh. You always wonder if anybody ever listens to what you say. So that's good. Yes, you know. I listen, but I don't retain well. It has nothing to do with you. <laughs> well, I have some retention issues myself. All right, 12 to 14. Thus says Lord God, because Edom has acted against the house of Judah by taking vengeance, and has incurred grievous guilt, and avenged themselves upon them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will also cut off man and beast. I will stretch out my hand against Edom and cut off man and beast from it, and I will lay it waste from Teman even to to Didan. Uh, they will fall by the sword. I will lay my vengeance on Edom by the hand of my people Israel. Therefore, they will act in Edom according to my anger and according to my wrath. Thus they, will know that, thus they will know my vengeance, declares the Lord God. You can see that these are rather parallel sections. They're followed basically, basically the same thing. This is against who? Came from where? Esau. Esau. And we're now down basically south of the Dead Sea. What was their crime? They took vengeance. Against? Judah. Therefore? They're going to be cut off and weighed laced. Weighed laced? Weighed laced. Laid laced. Weighed laced. I'm like going, there's something wrong here. I just don't know what it is. Weighed laced instead of laid laced. That was a spoonerism. I saw you to a sheep. A what? A spoonerism. I've never heard of it. It's like butterfly is flutter by. That's my favorite one. Well, I, li I like the one where the uh, where the person that's ushering you in says, "May I show you to a sheet?" <laughs> <laughs> May I show you to a seat? <laughs> really? Yeah, cool. That's the classic one we learned as a spoonerism. It was named after some guy named Spooner who did that a lot. We had that in English back in the sixties and seventies. That's what it was, okay. Somebody Have you it. had spoonerism, Sigma? No, I never did. I did. Accidentally or purposefully? No, purposefully. Yeah, I do it too. One of his yeah. favorite things to do. Yeah. That and puns. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, Don't get me. I, I, I lost your father already. I have more and more. Two thirds of a pun to you. 
I think you talked all school or something. Yeah, I have, yeah. Well, I'm glad at least you were able to confirm that with me. These guys learned it in school, too. They just, yeah. I did not. I did. Yeah. I must be younger. I didn't learn it, to, I didn't learn it in school. I learned it from a book. Really, I, we learned it. Oxford school. Word Games. I, I learned it. <laughs> so Edom is going to be destroyed. They're going to be cut off. The vengeance they have taken against Judah will be repaid by the vengeance God executes on them. That is appropriate. So they will know. Well, usually it's they will know that I'm the Lord. In this case, they will know my vengeance. They'll know it in you know, as they say in. Portuguese, they know it in the in the skin. <laughs> that's a great that's a great idiomatic expression in Portuguese. You you, you know it in your skin, and you really feel it. Know it in your bones, and smelling it yeah, in your skin. You know it in your skin, not badly. And these people knew God. I mean, they, they should have known. Absolutely. And they weren't doing right by God, but they should have known Him. Because Edom was probably the nation that was the most bitterly hateful toward God's people of any, and they were related. Of course, remember how Esau and Jacob were related. And the nations had the same people, all the brothers. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what God said would happen even when they were born. And you remember the uh, book that's completely devoted to the destruction of Edom? Obadiah. Obadiah. Obadiah, Obadiah. 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 What did you call it? Obed-Edom. Oh, it's a good way to remember it. Obed-Edom. Obed-Edom. I can work with that. Yeah. Like Nehemiah. Yeah, it's kind of a memory device, a mnemonic device, to remember that Obadiah is about Edom. Think about Obed-Edom. That'll remind you it's Obadiah. Nehemiah built the walls. They were Nehemiah. Oh, okay. And how about 15 to 17, boys and girls? This is what the Sovereign Lord says, because the Philistines acted in vengeance and took revenge with malice in their hearts. They will ancient and with ancient hostility sought to destroy Judah. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I am about to stretch out my hand against the Philistines. Now I'll cut off the care that's it. And destroy those remaining along the sea coast. I will carry out great vengeance on them and punish them in my wrath. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I take vengeance on them. Okay, this comes on around to the south uh, western coastline to the Philistines. And, um, well, why is God angry with them? Their vengeance, and so God's going to take vengeance on them. I want you to remember something that I think is applicable to most of these. Remember what God told Abraham? He that blesses you, I will bless, and he that curses you, I will curse. It's Genesis 12. This is an application of that. You know, they are they are against God's people, therefore God stretches out his hand against the Philistines, and he cuts off the Carathites. Um... The word Carathites, that means they come from Crete, because the Philistines came from Crete, but the word Carathites sounds like the word for cut off in Hebrew. 
So it's a pun. Sorry, what was that? The cutoff and the Karathites sound the same or similar in Hebrew. And what are the Karathites? They come from Crete. And what is that? Crete is an island in the Mediterranean that the Philistines came from. So that's why they were called Karathites. And in fact, uh, well, it says Karathites. And that's an island with the kingdom? Uh-huh. Yeah. What we think, anyway. So, you have these four nations in chapter 25, Ammon, Moab, Edom, and Philistia, that are going to be destroyed. That's four of the seven in chapters 25 to 32. So as you can see, some of these other three are going to come in for a lot more extensive treatment than what those four have. What? Oh, we're not there yet. I think there's a reason in each case. Tyre and Sidon in Egypt? Sidon will be brief, Tyre and Egypt will be long. Very long. Maybe Egypt, Egypt I could figure out that Tyre... We'll talk about Tyre next week. Oh, this is good. Is that where they scraped off the rock? Yes. Okay, this is good. Yes. I love that story. Yes. I think it'll be very involved. Well, sort of involved. Like, it's the part you don't like. Well, no, it won't. It'll be good. <laughs> Why don't I like about it? She doesn't uh, like history. Yeah, history. <laughs> but it's a great story. You have to learn to like history when you study the Bible. Just like I've had to learn to like poetry by studying the Bible. I never liked poetry until I studied the Bible. Well, I'm not a poetry fan either, but Psalms are good. Yeah, history's good. <laughs> All right, well, why don't we stop there, and we'll work on 26 and following next Monday night, and that'll be the last time before I go to Brazil, I think. Do you know, did I digress? We were looking up trying to spell the names of the Roman emperors. Did I miss one? No, do you know when we looked it up on the internet, they do not start with Julius Caesar. They start with Augustus. Yeah. yeah. It's going to depend on your source. I mean, that's, it's, you know, half of them will say Augustus, half of them will say Julius. Depends on how you look at it, as it always does in history. There's a lot of things like that. Depends oh, on at least the one he Googled and came up with, it didn't even show Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you can you can make a good case either way in history books. Cut off. Cut off.